0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Troubles is a chapter of history that many in Northern Ireland would rather forget. But 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, its legacy can still be felt there today. A new Imperial War Museum exhibition, Northern Ireland Living with the Troubles, revisits the conflict through the eyes of those who were there at the time. And I spoke to its curator, Craig Murray, to find out more. Thank you for joining me, Craig. So you're the curator of a new Imperial War Museum exhibition, Northern Ireland Living with the Troubles, which is open now in London. So can you begin by telling us a bit about the exhibition and why you thought that now was the right time to reflect on this era of Northern Ireland's history?
2: The exhibition is a sort of culmination of four or so years' work um, over the last few years, and it's very much goes down the angle of the contested narrative that surrounds the Troubles in Northern Ireland. There isn't generally an accepted, easy narrative that runs through the Troubles, and I was very keen to sort of capture that kind of idea to sort of bring a sort of hopefully a greater understanding of how the Troubles uh, panned out to mainly an English audience because the levels of understanding in the Troubles are. Not great, largely because it's not taught that well in schools or taught at all, and also it is a very confusing um, narrative as well. And, and one of the things you will go away from this exhibition is possibly slightly confused, but that's probably a good thing because you kind of need to realise it's not an easy narrative uh, that runs through, and it'll be nice and clean, and you'll be able to, you'll, you'll have to think a little bit more about this. The very fact it's coming the twenty-fifth anniversary year of the Good Friday Agreement is largely chance rather than design (laughs) oddly enough but yeah it's it is a complex narrative it's a difficult narrative and it contains a lot of opinions and ideas that people might not necessarily like but it's very important you hear them if you want to be able to understand the troubles better what people's reasons and motivations were and what really were the causes behind this happening in the late 1960s
0: as you say, when you visit the exhibition, one of the first things that you encounter is a sign that that openly warns visitors. It says, you will encounter opinions that you don't like in this exhibition. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those challenges of making an exhibition about a historical era that's so controversial or divisive as the Troubles? Because you're not going to be able to please everybody with this exhibition, are you?
2: No, I think anything to do with the Troubles, people have certain held opinions, right or wrong about it. Some people instantly will see the fact that paramilitaries are included in it has been somehow why you speaking to these people and as I went on a bit earlier um, you need to hear why they felt it was necessary to do what they do you may not agree with it you may vehemently disagree with what the, their motives and their ideas are but it was their it's their narrative and it's their it's how they saw it and they would have believed it at the time whether their opinions have changed since some have some haven't the point of the fact is that one of the things that has allowed peace to, of a sort to endure in Northern Ireland is this acceptance of people telling their truth if you don't like it then tell me what you think um often this pans out in things such as the tours you do um walking tours particularly where you will have a guide from one community will hand over to another community and they may have a sort of jokey jovial conversation around you well you've heard the truth here now you're going to hear their version of events but the very fact that can be done in that way um is something that couldn't happen decades ago or people wouldn't even have considered. I mean, it's not to say the troubles... The, the conflict itself is really over because it's not there's a lot of uh, unresolved issues here and people still don't necessarily feel safe in certain other communities there's way forward still yet it, it isn't concluded and something the exhibition is trying to bring out particularly at the end is that this they may have signed an agreement in 1998 but that doesn't necessarily sign an agreement in people's minds um, there is so much unresolved around um, victims around uh, sectarianism becoming perhaps more embedded uh, um, still housing, people won't necessarily stay in certain areas because of the fear. Um, and also the segregated school aspect. There are several generations of this, I think, to go before it has it moves into a more normalized way of being, I think.
0: It's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because, of course, the Imperial War Museum as a whole covers a much longer span of history, but we're talking here about events that many people remember, many people listening will probably remember. So what additional challenges does that add if you're creating an exhibition about an era people lived through?
2: Well, I'm a senior creator in the Cold War and late 20th century team, so Pretty much our entire our entire remit is contested and, well, it's controversial in some senses. Once you get past the Second World War, you don't get this nice narrative of good guys and bad guys. So things like this are difficult. I think the, the other thing to note about the Troubles is it's very easy to look at other people's wars and be more dispassionate about things, but when it's your war which is what the Troubles is, it becomes a lot more difficult because many people have a skin in the game when it comes to the Troubles. They may have known people who were soldiers there. They may have relatives there. They may have people they knew who were paramilitaries. And um, it still hangs over us. And I think the lack of engagement generally coming from UK mainland and people in Northern Ireland don't like the use of like the mainland as if they're somewhere different, you know. But you know, I mean, it's the larger part of the United Kingdom. Um, it, Northern Ireland often feels geographically distant; it's separated by sea, but it seems far away in the mind as well. And also, there's a lack of. Understanding around where this comes from, why it's like what it is, the 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 March and season things. that These things just seem very alien to an awful lot of the particularly English audience. I mean, I come from the west coast of Scotland, so a lot of this seems very very normal to me, if that's a word. But it can look very strange from an outsider's point of view. And I think as well, the other thing to point is that because the IRA's campaign and on the mainland, if you will, particularly in England, like Warrington, Birmingham, London. Guildford, what have you it's left a memory and a mark on many people from that period of the troubles and what happened, how it came to England. You obviously got to be very aware of the fact that people coming to this may have been affected by bombings or bomb scares in London. I mean I've spoke to people who who were from like say London and remember a uh, relative mine their aunt was supposed to was in Manchester the day of the Manchester bombing. Or was going to be at work that day but ended up having a day off luckily enough but it's, so there's, people are directly involved that weren't actually in Northern Ireland and I think it just has a tension around it because it doesn't get talked about a lot and there's a a poor understanding of Irish history in general, I mean even outside the troubles and Britain's relationship with Ireland over the centuries uh, and where it stands within, it's been part of Britain and not part of Britain and people's attitude to that so I think it just remains tense for a lot of people and I think also many people probably think well didn't wasn't the, the treaty signed in 1990 it hasn't gone now but what this exhibition hopefully shows is that it stopped the killing the agreement but it didn't it left many things um unaddressed and probably still aren't addressed to this day
0: I do want to return to some of those points later, but as you say, this is a super complex story and you do give visitors to the exhibitions some resources to try and help people through that complex story. But another way around it and making this more accessible is through looking at and sharing the unfiltered experiences of ordinary people. In the troubles from both sides of the conflict. So, why did you want to kind of make that the heart of the exhibition rather than, you know, the big political movements? It's really about the people and how it was to live at this time.
2: Yeah, I think that's it. I think I was always very conscious at the start that it was about the people in Northern Ireland. And I made a sort of conscious decision when I was speaking to people approaching people to talk to, not to be looking for for want of our term, the more known personalities are in the troubles, because in some senses their presence might detract away from everybody else's voice. It become their show in some senses. And I think the thing is as well... We often hear about Northern Ireland through the voices of political commentators, through politicians, and through journalists. And the people in Northern Ireland generally get held as talking heads on a on the news after an incident or something like that. You know, just what they remembered, and you don't get their lived experience. But um, every day they were experiencing things such as the shootings, the bombings, um, soldiers in your garden on patrol when you went to work in the morning, going through checkpoints. Belfast city centre had a ring of steel around it from the mid 70s through to about 1984 where you had to go through turnstiles and be checked by the army and police the shops would be covered in cages to stop bombs or like attacks on the shops so this kind of abnormal existence which was people's normal they just got used to and the, the walls we have a photograph from the beginning early 70s and it shows a sort of part of the initial sort of Barbed wire and steel barrier put up by the the British Army's Royal Engineers in 69 between the Shankull and Falls Road areas. And at that point, it's just, it's maybe like six foot high in barbed wire and seen as a temporary fixture that's going to hopefully come down. Now, these walls are like 20 foot high steel walls with, you know, with grills and what have you. And then back and over onto some gardens, they even have steel cages over the back of their gardens. So these issues still are there and although some walls have come down and they were supposed to come down in 2023 um, they're still there Um, and I think there is still a feeling of nervousness and that it isn't the time yet to bring these walls down so I wanted to get that across but it was very much I wanted them to tell their story and it was their story not our story it was their version of events and I let them tell it basically I think To think the IWM could tell a better narrative than them would be naive. They can tell it much better than we could. And that was
1: something I was very keen. It was their story. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: You said how you wanted to bring lesser known voices um, to the fore in this. Can you tell us a bit more about the process of of finding the people for these interviews and conducting these interviews, because presumably this would be quite triggering material for a lot of people. As you say, it's still very raw, it's still very visceral for many people in Northern Ireland.
2: Yeah, I originally started, I think in 2019 contacting uh, an academic in Belfast because uh, I knew via Twitter. He's from North Belfast and part of the nationalist community but he's, he writes, he's an sort of expert on loyalism and he writes books and articles on loyalist culture from paramilitarism, political culture, what have you. And he gave me the names of two ex-UVF men, also a volunteer force, loyalist paramilitary group. Um, And I went over and saw them and I I sort of explained what I wanted to do and what I was thinking about. And they were very keen to get involved. They thought it was good that we were doing it, particularly we're doing it in London, where, uh, you know, their story could be told to a bigger audience. And... From then on, I sort of got names from partly from meeting people like them. They maybe recommended speaking to... You maybe want to speak to so-and-so. Others were some more speculative. Emails or phone calls I made to people and just asked them. It grew kind of organically. Some of it was kind of planned. I wanted to speak to certain people, but others I met just sometimes by chance and sometimes by recommendation. So I had a fairly organic process. partly planned, partly just um, organic in the way it grew out of it. But... um, Nobody was generally unhappy to talk about it. When I told them what I was wanting to do and explained why we were doing it, people seemed happy that we were engaging with the subject and actually going to do something about it. I drew up lists of questions I wanted to ask them all. And I said every time I sent them out, like, if there's anything here you don't want to talk about, you don't like, then we can leave it or we can alter it. Or you may, if you want to suggest other things that that I might want to hear or might be useful, then we can do that. But uh, nobody had any issue talking about what I asked them about to be honest.
0: And so of all these people that you interviewed on both sides of the divide did you find any kind of commonalities emerged of people's experiences of this time? Did you get differing opinions from both sides or did you find that there were some common threads?
2: I was interested in this idea of was there a commonality between sort of working class loyalists and Republicans? Because essentially these are working class communities. That's where mainly the troubles hit. Most of the people who went through jail or who were killed would have been working class. And many people saw, yeah, there was certainly like. They were the same people, you know, but there was differences of where we're taught not to see or we didn't want to see or we felt they had more advantage than us on this situation, but you know, we were kind of the same. So yeah, there was varying levels of agreement and disagreement on commonality. I think the basically community wise and class wise, I think there was a general scene as a commonality between, but in some senses that the perception of whether the Loyalist community had a slight advantage over the Republican community as far as, you know, jobs, what have you, your housing. I mean, the, the housing aspect is very, can be controversial because they certainly stayed in the same kind of town, in you know, the same kind of places. There wasn't necessarily, you weren't like, if you were a Loyalist, you had much better house and you certainly didn't. It was very much that. But then, but the civil rights movement in the 60s is around this idea of things tilted in favour of the... Protestant, loyalist, unionist community in terms of jobs and what have you there's one member of the official area I spoke to um, said, he says yeah as far as he was concerned it was kind of how did he, the phrase he used was a penny down and a half penny he the difference wasn't much, and I just because I asked him about the job thing, because that was obviously a thing that some Catholics would be prejudiced against. And he was like, "Well, yeah, it's true, yeah, but he, he would believe that if you were a, a Protestant who didn't have somebody within these big factories or these big works like the shipbuilding, then you might not get in either, because there was a lot of nepotism went on." He says, well, "And as far as being a woman again, you said good luck, yeah. So it's quite complicated." It is true that the state essentially was a, a unionist run country for the union and the Republican um, nationalist community would have rightly felt there were issues that were affecting them. But it gets, the more you look into it, the more complex it gets, I think.
0: You spoke earlier about the experience of, of living in somewhere like Belfast during the Troubles. For those who were not, actively engaged in the fighting or the political aspect of things. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that in terms of what you found of the experiences of, for example, women um, and non-combatants and and children.
2: I mean, day-to-day life in Northern Ireland during the Troubles for Civilians would be, to somebody in England who lives in, say, in Leicester or Leeds or Manchester or London, would have seemed... Utterly strange. The armed police. So, you get up to go to work in no the morning, there's soldiers, armed soldiers in your garden on patrol. You have to go through various checkpoints, um, stop near your car stops at places, you're checked by the army, what have you. In some areas, you're checked by paramilitary groups as well. Um, the constant bomb scares, the actual bombs going off, the shootings. Most people, the intimacy of the killing in Northern Ireland was such that most people died within about 300 metres of their own front door. That's how close it was. Um, this going to the shops even could be a challenge. People wanted to do the same things as they did anywhere else, listen to the same music, have the same fashion, do the same things, but you were constrained. And I think that tension all the time, living that that life, must have been utterly unreal. Uh, certainly one of the, the ladies I spoke to she said when she moved to England in 2015, she looked back at it and think, how do you live like that? But that was my normal, as she said. Even people who were maybe not involved in doing it sometimes would find their community, people in their communities, they may have relatives who were, so it often impacted you anyway. Communities could be very close and you would find varying degrees of support for paramilitary groups in those communities. They could be seen as obviously protectors, but they could also be seen as being repressive and you didn't step out of line against them. But then many people supported them because they felt they were doing a good job and felt they were protecting them against, you know, what the other side were going to do to them. But there's always this narrative of defence um, and this idea of protecting the community, even though there's also a lot of attacking going on as well. So it's... Um, I think as well, certainly, one person who was involved, she interestingly came from a, a mixed-race family. Her father was from Nigeria and he was blown up by an IRA bomb in 1980. Her uh, mother was from Straban, but they were in Belfast and had a nice life. But then it's sort of plummeted into chaos after his death this basically pulled the rug from under their life and they started moving around the areas and they never fitted in wherever they were because her mother vehemently hated the ira even though she came from what would be essentially a nationalist republic certainly Strabane is a very republican town um she would have been a nationalist she said her mother she said of her mother but she wouldn't tend to have been agreeing with the, the with the ira and obviously with her, her husband's death at the hands of the provisional ira her anger and rage and just general hatred for them increased to the point where she said like she would constantly talk out about it, to the point where the british army knew fine she was she loathed them so much she never got checked anyway they never had their houses raided so they had to ask them to pretend to raid the house because they were being ostracized in the community but she said didn't matter where they went whether we were moved from like a loyalist community or a republican community didn't fit in partly they've been her and her sister's Looked mixed race, which was problematic in 70s Belfast. Another thing was, you would, if they were in, say, a Republican community, it would be, she would said, well, well we're Catholic. they say, oh, you're Catholic, but you don't like the IRA. Or if they were in a loyalist community, it's like, oh, you might hate the IRA, but you're still Catholic. She said, we well, were never a fit anywhere, but um, it sounded like a, a fairly terrible existence moving around that. Another one of the contributors, he came from a Republican background, but he was never interested in being involved I mean, he actually faced hostility from his own father and some people for not appearing to do enough when he said, like, he just couldn't stand this and he wanted to go to England and get a job there. And he was just... His father just basically called me a coward, really. So um, even if you weren't involved, you were always kind of closely involved. Unless, I mean were are areas obviously weren't touched in bits of belfast the better off areas the middle class areas often it didn't touch those areas at all but these working class areas around like west belfast and east belfast and bits in nor- north belfast obviously this is where the violence happened that happens in these communities and so even if you aren't involved these these groups are there all the time they're, they're always there um but i think it's that's the difficult one of just trying to get through your life without um getting involved. I mean, one, one chap I know, basically he was lifted by the police because he used to get lift kids and that and stuff and he get dumped back in the road and that was never a good look, um, to be dumped back in your community out of the back of a police van. Um, and his father had to go and speak to the local provisional IRA leadership just to ensure them that he wasn't a tout. He was basically just a young lad that had been lifted and kept inside and then thrown back out just deliberately to make it look like he was doing something. Um, but his dad kept him out of it. And um, so it could be hard, There's always that pressure or something just to join these groups because of what was happening. And obviously civilians eh, bore the burden of like fatalities and injuries. They were the ones that get caught up in the bombings and the shootings, what have you. They're, they're the ones that tend to pay the price in these conflicts.
0: I think those are some interesting examples because they demonstrate that you know, there may have been this one central division, but everybody's experience of it would have been dramatically different and and there's no kind of sweeping generalisations that you can make. Um, I was really interested by what you said earlier, um, that people were very happy to talk about all the subjects you wanted to touch on because it's one thing to talk about being a victim of violence. It's a lot harder to talk about perhaps being a perpetrator of violence. Did you find that people were willing to talk about those kind of things with you?
2: I mean, I had discussions with various ex-paramilitaries and one, I said, look, like, we can talk, I mean, talking about the killings, not really necessarily what we do for this exhibition, it's not about that. But I did ask them about things, about their attitudes towards, particularly with paramilitaries, their attitude towards the police and the army and others. And um, some of them were very frank on their opinions and the order of who they targeted. One member of the Provisional IRA who's ex ex member of the Provisional IRA spoke to, explained the sort of the dehumanizing you have to do to be able to kill people. Uh, Once you start seeing somebody as a person who maybe has the same hobbies as you, reads the same books, likes going for a run, coaches kids football at the weekend, that becomes harder to kill people. But if you just view them as just a target, as a sort of, as he put it, the sort of the upholder of a rotten, corrupt state then you can do that. But as, he, as a caveat, he says, you do lose your own humanity by doing that. So um, there was a lot of honesty among them when I spoke to them.
0: It raises a really interesting question. Somebody that was in the exhibition when I was in there was saying that by attempting neutrality and giving each side equal weighting, their argument was you are essentially taking a side. What would you say to that?
2: A museum is never neutral, you don't allow people to start spouting hatred or anti-Semitism or misogyny and just let that run. You don't. We don't do that. If, and nobody is. It's not a case of not taking a side. It's allowing you to hear the narratives of people. It's not sitting in the fence. It's basically, it's like if you want to understand the troubles, you have to hear these people who experience it from different views. We give you the evidence or we give you the stuff that's there and you have to try and think about it yourself. It's not spoon-feeding people here. It's not It's not, not taking a side. It's just showing you there are a lot of signs, and you need to hear them all. It's allowing these different narratives to play out because it's not an easy conflict to get your head around. And with other difficult conflicts... I would argue that is a way to do it as well.
0: One other thing I wanted to ask you about was some of the images that you have in the exhibition. So obviously you have these oral testimonies, but you also have some really incredibly affecting, striking photographs. I wonder if you could maybe give us um, an example of one that you think is particularly important or interesting.
2: Yeah, I suppose they were all kind of chosen for their effect. And there's a photograph in the second, the third room, sent in the violence. Joe McCann, who's an official IRA commander, and in the middle of a battle, he had the wherewithal to pose for a photograph, which is very striking because it's in silhouette, and it's a very resonant image. Whether you, whatever your opinion of any group of the IRA or any paramilitary group, it's just it's a very well shot composed photograph. With the background, with the burning cars and the burning building, it just, it kind of sums up the 1970s troubles in a sense, just that darkness, that uh, the violence. I think that photograph I just think is very, very striking. Um, I like the picture as well of Shirley Pilkington, who was a Women's Royal Army Corps um, officer. Checking, doing the bag checking, because she has an interesting backstory to her way into the army and being there, and just the stuff there to deal with, and I think it's she approached us a few years ago and said, "I'm sure that's me that photograph," because at the time we didn't have any. We just said it. We just said it was our Women's Royal Army um, uh, Corps soldier by checking a woman in Belfast but we didn't know I have a name with it and she contacted us and says, I'm sure that's me and she sent me a lot of photographs of her in the army at the time and I looked and I thought yeah you're right it is you isn't it and um, so she had a great story to tell and I just I just think that image of her just going through her day just doing this kind of checking is quite an interesting one. There's one which shows some Coldstream Guards soldiers patrolling in Straban in 76 or 78 I think it is and there's kids playing football and it's just soldiers walking through the middle of the game and these kids are not even blinking because that's just normal I think that's a great image to show that the fact that men with guns can walk past and you just keep your kickabout going because frankly why wouldn't you <laughs> that's just kids getting on with it that's their normal soldiers in the street walking through their football game
0: (laughs) so I know we've alluded to this kind of throughout the conversation but I wonder if you had any concluding thoughts about how this is reflected on in Northern Ireland today is Northern Ireland still a divided place today
2: yeah, I think what came out of it is particularly when I asked them about what they saw the future of the country being, and what they th- they thought has changed since 1998 and which plays out in the final film of the exhibition, is there tends to be probably more um, confidence I think within the nationalist Republican community, there's a feeling that a united Ireland has become more inevitable, if not inevitable um, I think unionism and loyalism appears to be less confident on that and just their future, the recent political climate with obviously the Northern Ireland Protocol, Brexit, everything else, which is making their feelings around their place in the United Kingdom seem more tenuous. But I think what came across was people were very keen to share their opinions and have those opinions known and come out and were happy to tell me that hopefully there's a general sort of happiness that that's their story is getting shared in a place that probably has ignored it too long or hasn't heard about it
0: that was craig murray curator of the new exhibition northern ireland living with the troubles that exhibition is open now at the imperial war museum in london thanks for listening to the history extra podcast This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.